am here with Jonathan Haidt. John, thanks for joining me again. My pleasure, Sam. So um, we're planning to do a two-part conversation here, starting with the topic that has been uh, omnipresent and on everybody's mind for now some months, which is the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And you know, I wanted to talk to you about that just because of you know, your expertise in social psychology and the way in which it's informing or should be informing our view of political polarization, the fraying of societies, concerns about social cohesion, and everything that is a kind of knock-on effect of the, or a potential knock-on effect of the the immediate concern here, which is epidemiological and economic. And so we'll, we'll dive into that. And then in the second half, I thought we could talk about our mutual interest in self-transcendence and the nature of consciousness and the, and the kinds of methods people have used, and you and I have both used to explore that terrain, psychedelics and, and meditation being two. So we'll just, this will be kind of a two-chapter conversation, and I'm looking forward to it. So but before we begin, John, just perhaps summarize your background briefly in terms of your kind of intellectual life as it relates to psychology and politics, perhaps. Yeah, so I think in a lot of ways, I, I started out on a very similar path to you. Where, yeah, I was a philosophy major uh, in college, and I wanted to understand the meaning of life. And then I went to, to graduate school in psychology, and I, and I uh, shifted over to social psychology and morality and emotion. And I began studying how morality varies across cultures. But as the American culture war heated up, I shifted over to looking at left-right as being like different cultures. So I started studying political polarization back in uh, 2004. And boy, has, is that a stock whose value has risen. I mean, it's just reached insane valuations right now. So that's what I've been studying. And during, so I actually got into it in part to help the Democrats win. I was so upset that the Democrats in 2000, 2004 just had no idea how to talk about morality. But as I began to write The Righteous Mind, I really started reading conservative ideas and intellectuals and discovering that there are actually a lot of ideas out there that I didn't know, and it's very valuable to hear other sides, I kind of stepped out from being on a team. And, I, and since then, I've really just been trying to help everyone understand across the divide. And, and I'm extremely alarmed about our democracy and its, its health. So that's what I've been working on for the last 10 or 15 years, especially, is how do we help people understand all the different moral matrices that they live in, and thereby turn down some of the anger and make it possible to have pragmatic solutions of the sort that a democracy should be able to reach. Yeah, and you, you were one of the earliest people on, on some of these points. You might have been the first person to signal just how dysfunctional the ivory tower's view of the political landscape has been. I mean, so it's, it's just natural within the academy to have a level of political bias that is, you know, just would be starkly dysfunctional anywhere else. You get guarantees an echo chamber effect, and you were, you know, very early on talking about how a lack of diversity of ideas was really socially and intellectually problematic, and so you started the, the Heterodox Academy to shine more light on that. Do you want to say something about that? Yeah, sure, because it's very well connected to what we'll be talking about today. So once I once I stepped out of the matrix and, and stopped being a member of a team fighting the other team. 
and and uh, you know just started being a, just a social scientist trying to figure out what the hell's going on. I started noticing not just that we lean left. That that isn't a problem. A field can function even if it leans, you know, two or three. If, there, if you got two or three times as many people on the left as the right, that's not a problem, and it wouldn't be a problem to reverse either. We don't need balance. What we need is a, a complete absence of orthodoxy. So orthodoxy, you know, means that if you dissent, you will be punished. Mm. And you know, that's fine if your goal is cohesion. You know, if you're an army marching into battle, maybe that's fine. But if you're scientists seeking the truth, you know, anybody who's read John Stuart Mill knows he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. So that's what alarmed me. As soon as I, I started looking at the polarization in the country, I saw it happening in my own field of psychology and, and saw it happening in, in most of the social sciences and humanities. And I could see orthodoxy. I could see bad social science thinking. And I started getting alarmed by it. I gave a talk in 2011 on how this was a problem for social psychology. And to my field's credit, I didn't suffer. Nobody, you know, I wasn't kicked out. People didn't get angry at me. People generally agreed it's a problem, but it's been hard to, hard to really change things. And that's what Heterodox Academy is trying to do. Well, it was a problem way back then, but in 2016, the reckoning really seemed to happen because what we witnessed there was a country divided along seems we had seen before, this heartland revulsion against the coasts and against the, the cosmopolitanism and elitism or perceived elitism of uh, big cities and you know their liberal inhabitants. And Trump managed to magnify that divide to a degree that I still think we're trying to grapple with what happened there and trying not yeah. to repeat the same psychological experiment over the next six months. Well, and then I should also say that now the pandemic has somehow, you know, if it were possible to amplify that yeah. dynamic, yeah. it has. That's right. So how are you viewing the current moment and what this yeah. quasi-quarantine has done to further expose yeah. this intellectual and tribal schism in the country? Yeah. So to understand where we are, you have to go back at least to the, well, let's go all the way back to the 1950s and 60s when America was pretty unpolarized. The, the post-war world was an unusually, historically, it was quite unusual in the mid-20th century and having very low levels of polarization. There were liberal Republicans, there were conservative Democrats. And for a variety of reasons in the 70s and especially in the 80s, we began to see almost like you know, tectonic plates moving around. We began to have one party that had psychological progressives and one party that had psychological conservatives. So before then, things were all scrambled and, uh, you know, rural people were often Democrats and the Democrats were the party of the working man. There was a lot of mixing and matching and there was the possibility of bipartisan legislation. A lot of legislation was bipartisan back then. But for a variety of reasons, we start getting sorting into types of people who are sorting by values. I think Ronald Reagan put together a coalition that was not just economic, pro-business. It was also with, the, with Christians and religious right and, and family values. And this is much more dangerous because if you have coalitions based on interests, well, you can make deals, you can trade mm -hmm. off. But when you have coalitions based on personality types that share values, well, now the other side is evil. They are bad people. And as the parties increasingly then became more purified in terms of density, that is, if, it's, you know, if there's a lot of people per square mile, it votes Democrat. And if there's few people per square mile, it votes Republican. 
and also very alarmingly by race, as the Republican Party is becoming more the party of, of white people, this, these splits are very dangerous. So I've, I'm extremely alarmed. I was extremely alarmed even back uh, around 2010, 2012, and it is so much worse now. And then there's the media environment. We can get into that later, perhaps, but changes in social media between 2009 and 2011 gave us much more of an outrage machine adding on to cable TV, which has has been causing problems for a while as well. So it was really, the table was really set for an election in which reality had little grip on a lot of people and passions, anger, fury gripped a lot of people. I mean, it's basically straight out of the Federalist Papers where Madison writes about faction and the human tendency to faction. If we hate the other side so much, we don't care about the common good. And there was a lot of anger in the 2016 election. Had there not been so much anger, had we not been so polarized, there's no way Donald Trump could have gotten elected. So I think everyone needs to think, whatever side you're on, if you care about the country, we need to figure out what do we do about this? How can we, how can we turn things down in the future? Yeah, and the, the information piece is crucial here. The fact that people can so successfully silo themselves and pre-stigmatize other sources of information or messages that they don't want to hear. I mean, there's a level of confirmation bias and just allergy to data that doesn't fit your narrative and conspiracy thinking that doesn't even recognize that it's conspiracy thinking. In terms of just the public conversation we're we're having with one another and failing to have, there's something unrecognizable about this. I don't know if that's just some kind of delusion that that I've acquired based on it being delivered through new channels like social media or if it's some recency effect, or if yeah. I'm just getting older, but it, to some degree, it's even ramped up in the context of this pandemic, where I see otherwise very smart, you know, rational people, i.e., not the usual tinfoil yeah. hat crowd, succumbing to degrees of motivated reasoning that, without apology and without apparent bandwidth to check themselves ever, and proving completely unsusceptible to argument. It's just yeah. like there, there are no universally trusted sources of information that can resolve disagreements at this point, it seems. Well, that's right, because you, you, you have to see people not as creatures seeking information, but as social creatures enmeshed in games of competition or war or conflict. And when we're not, when the conflict level is low and you put us in the right circumstances and institutions, we actually can find the truth. And that, that's the magic of a university. That's the magic of science. But imagine a scientific field in which suddenly, let's, let's take all the normal dynamics of science, and then let's put a lot of money in so that there's a huge amount of money riding on, on whether you, you, know, you, you get this discovery or patent. Well, that would corrupt things. And of course, that has happened to some degree in, in medicine and some areas. In the social sciences, money doesn't play much of a role, but politics does. And so mm-hmm. you get, um, as, as tribal passions and you know, hatred of the other political party rises, you get the same kind of corrupting dynamic there. So I do think it is a theme of the 2010s, and I suppose of the 2020s, that it is actually getting harder to find the truth than it was 20 or 30 years ago, I believe. That is, despite the, you know, obviously, some kinds of facts and truth are just fantastically easy. I mean, I'm very grateful for Google and, and the internet. Obviously, many things are getting better. But anything that is politically or morally tagged so that one side wants to believe it and the other doesn't, 
in some ways, it is now harder to find the truth than it used to be. At least that's, that's what I'm coming to see. In my own field in psychology, we've had this replication crisis. And so this is a different mechanism. But we mm. used to think that, you know, when I was in grad school, we learned that correlational studies are not very reliable. But experiments, wow, that's the gold standard. You know, if it's a random assignment, double blind, uh, you know, boy, that's the, that's the, that's, that tells you what caused what. But now we're finding that even a lot of our experiments don't replicate. And so I think the attitude we have to take into the 2020s is a lot more humility. We simply don't know what the truth is, no matter how fervently we believe we do. And I, you know, I, I imagine you're quite familiar with that kind of a, a mindset and issues of faith, but it, mm-hmm. it, it infects all of us. And I'm hopeful that this virus, this pandemic has humbled everyone because we were pretty much all wrong about a lot of things. We're still wrong about most things or many things probably. Yeah, th- this has been an interesting ordeal of epistemology, really, this pandemic, yeah. because so we, we've been dealing with patently unreliable information, you know, rumors leaking out of China and, and then the overt attempt to suppress those rumors or, or a message against them by a communist regime that has every reason to worry about the perception of it in the world. And then, you know, all of the tribal spin given to that circumstance by our own politics. We have a completely deranged president mm-hmm. who is concerned about you know, the, the stock market and its effect on his chances of re-election. We have a personality cult amplifying you know, every one of his errant ideas. Yeah. But then we have just all these different vested interests and people in w- without much political partisanship exposed to very different or you know, likely very different outcomes with respect to the single variable of deciding to lock down society, right? So you have people whose businesses mm-hmm. can still be maintained once we lock things down, and then there, yeah, some right. of them even improve, right? And then you have people who, for whom every aspect of economic life is going to grind to a halt. And these people may, on either side of this divide, they may be equally reasonable and equally respectful of science, and yet you can see the consequences of your economic concerns trimming down your ability to think clearly about what the data is suggesting at any time point. It's been very interesting to witness. I mean, I continue to believe that at every point along the way, you know, even when we, the truth is we still don't know how lethal this Mm -hmm. disease is. That's right. But we, at every point along the way, it has been prudent to try to stop the spread of the contagion, to spare our healthcare system, because we could see what was happening in, in Italy and other countries, and to use the time we were, we were thereby gaining for ourselves to ramp up testing and our ability to trace and isolate cases and to understand the virus and obviously develop therapeutics and, and ultimately a vaccine. Uh, now, we, we have proven surprisingly inept at using the time well, and that's yeah. something we, we have to figure out how to improve and, and understand you know, going forward. But it has always seemed prudent, even given the absolutely predictable economic costs, to err on the side of caution here, because at every point along the way, this has seemed considerably worse than the flu. I mean, the al- analogies to the flu have always seemed inaccurate. And the question is, how much worse is this than the flu? Then reasonable people can debate that. So, for instance, there are very prominent people who are making claims like hospitals are 
coding more or less every conceivable death as a COVID death. Yeah. So right, the mortality right. statistics are completely fake right now. Whether this is, I'm sure that that's happened in in a few places, but this is either a very dangerous conspiracy theory or something we have to get to the bottom of immediately. And it's very hard to tell, right? I mean, so you can't that's figure right. this yeah. out in two hours. And who would you trust to put this claim to rest or not? The New York Times isn't good enough, apparently. So I, mean, I don't know how you think about how we move yeah. forward in this space where there are very few trusted gatekeepers of information. And these, the disparity between believing one thing and believing its antithesis is enormous. That's right. I th- so I think, so I'll go with you on your analysis on the first, the first few weeks or a you know, month or two of this, which is that as long as we didn't know much about this thing, we didn't know what the death rate was, it could be 3%, 6%. And for God's sakes, our, our doctors didn't even have masks. So I think right. there, was no, there was really no dispute that we had to do lockdowns at first when we just didn't know what was going on and we could not deal with it. We had no idea where the high watermark would be. You know, and I'm sitting here in, in Manhattan where everything is peaceful and the streets are quiet, but you know, it was pandemonium in the hospitals and we had no idea how, how high the wave of death was going to crest. And I think to their credit, Americans actually really did uh, accept that. I mean, Americans really did. You know, I was surprised that we, I think in those first weeks, we actually did get you know, obviously not like they did in China or other places using a lot more force, but Americans did go along with it. And the surveys still show that most people support that. But once we got through that first wave with enormous economic cost, which is also a personal cost, now I think there are at least real alternative views that need to be discussed. And if we had some sort of a, of a reasonable, rational media system, uh, uh, <laughs> reasonable democracy with reasonable discourse norms, we could actually do it. What I mean is, especially say the Sweden model, it is at least reasonable to say, okay, you know, they're doing it differently in different countries. Well, let's look, how, how does it work? You know, do they, do they get uh, immunity faster? So as long as there was so much unknown, it actually would be really important to listen to the other side, to listen to critics. And that's the way that, that's the way that we all get smarter is, is by having our confirmation biases challenged. So I, I'm a big fan of that. Now, unfortunately, we live in this crazy funhouse madhouse in which, as you said, there's, there are national interests trying to distort things. There are you know, Russian, uh, you know, Russian operatives trying to you know, use rumors to divide us. We have a president who, when, uh, when George W. Bush uh, to, you know, uh, gave a, a call for us to come together, it was a you know, beautiful call from a former president and for, for Trump to to attack him on the spot, that to me was one of the several just horrible low points of this yeah. whole thing. It also just shows us how far from normal politics we've wandered, because you know here, here we have a current Republican president vilifying a previous Republican yes. president who was making nothing more than a call for national unity and, and a transcendence of partisanship, and the current president can't even transcend his own yeah. thin-skinned concern. No, that's right. I know when that happened, I didn't get angry at all. I was laughing. It's like, oh my, this Amazing. cannot be happening. This cannot yeah. be happening. So now we are so far beyond, we're, we're just so deep into the absurd. And so, yeah, that's what we have to figure out. Let me just put one, one distinction on the table is most Americans are pretty reasonable. Most Americans are not that polarized. You have to distinguish between the average and the sort of the, the dynamics of the system. And so let's take, just to take one example, on a, on a college campus, most students are pretty reasonable. 
but we've been because of social media and other things you know the the people who will, will use social media or or mount protests can have a, a disproportionate voice same thing in a in a democracy there's wonderful work by a group called more in common a british organization that surveyed america they've done really wonderful work on on studying polarization in the united states they find that americans fall into about seven different groups based on their political attitudes and four of the groups they call, which is a large majority they call the exhausted majority and these are people who are quite reasonable two of the groups are on the left one is centrists one is people who are just disengaged so most americans you know you can't you can't blame most americans but because of the nature of social media the nature of congress the nature of of the of cable news various people have megaphones that are pursuing either commercial interests or ideological interests and so you get absurdities well like fox news saying you know that uh, remdesivir is bad and chloroquine is good and this is after the scientific studies have come out showing the reverse so mm-hmm. what i'm saying is uh, don't give up on americans but it's almost time to give up on the, the the system or the network that we have and by give up on i don't mean that there's no hope i just mean like man we can't just go back to normal we got to dig deep figure out what's wrong and and fix this so that this becomes the bottoming out that 2020 becomes you know the worst year in a long time and uh and that something changes by the end of this decade how do you view the next let's say 6 months so the next 6 months is overshadowed entirely by the 2020 presidential election right it's just going to be politics all the time when it's not pandemic it'll be politics yep and we you know obviously don't know how much the economy is going to unravel in the, in the meantime but it seems like it's poised to uh, unravel to uh, an impressive degree i mean we're certainly flirting with with a real depression if you know joblessness numbers are any indication and again the the most hopeful predictions for a vaccine which is really the only thing that will fully reset our circumstance with respect to public health, nothing arrives before you know something like it would be a miracle if it arrived in January, right? And even that is very few people are, are imagining that it's sooner than than a year from now. And again, that it's we've got to remind ourselves of how amazing that would be. I think the fastest vaccine we've ever developed was four years for the mumps, and the average is fifteen years. One year would be a, you know a massive breakthrough. And let's say we improve on that and it's, we, we get a vaccine by January. Still, we have this period where not just the, our country, but the entire world has been pitched into a circumstance of real uncertainty financially, economically, and, and I think as a result, politically. How are you viewing the next six months? And I mean, there's just so many concerns yeah. on the table. Like, how do we yeah. even have a safe election, right? No, that's if, right? If we can't vote by mail, right? How do we get people to actually yeah. vote? What are you thinking about for the next yeah. six months? So, you know, I completely agree that it's going to be all pandemic and Trump all the time with just sideshows over Biden and, uh, and other things here and there. So there's no chance of the fever breaking until, until after the election. I'm certainly hoping that Trump is not, is not reelected. I think that, uh, you know, as many people said, oh, well, you know, there are adults in the room. In the first year or two, there were many good people uh, in government. And I think there are not so many uh, of them at the upper level anymore. They've, uh, so the point is that the, the craziness we've seen in the last year or two 
you know, would, would get even worse. So I think that if, if Trump is reelected, I think the, the damage to our democracy and the, the, our reputation in the world, our standing in the world, I, I don't, I, I'm terrified to think what would happen. Yeah. If, if Biden wins or, or, you know, there could be some route in which he's not the nominee or, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But if, uh, if Biden wins, uh, it would be great if we had a, a bold and inspiring leader. And I, you know, I'm not expecting that Biden will rise to that level, but, you know, who knows? There is a, of course, there's a chance for, for a reset of a lot of things. It's very hard to predict how things would play out. The one, the one thing I would question what you said is you say nobody is predicting a vaccine for a very long time. Yes, that's true. But, you know, this is one of those things, like we've been told a lot of things about what, about the virus, like don't wear masks and, you know, oh, we wash your hands for 20 seconds. And it turns out a lot of that was either wrong or at least not based on, on evidence. It is true that, that experts tell us it's likely to be a long time, and you're right that no vaccine has ever been invented that quickly. But, you know, there's a hundred, I just saw on the news the other day, there's a hundred uh, vaccines that are in development, and three or four of them are going into clinical trials now. And of course, yeah. we're not, there's no way we're going to follow the old protocol where we, you know, inoculate a lot of people and wait a year to see if how many got sick. No, we're going to do challenge trials. People are going to volunteer like crazy to be infected with the virus to see if they have the immunity. So I just raised this as just one example of how a lot of things that are put forth as facts about this, you have to at least actively look and say, okay, is this really a fact? Do we really know this? And, you know, under what scenarios might this not come true? And of course, if, suppose one of these, you know, there's one just starting at NYU, just I saw it on the news on Friday, they're, they're injecting, uh, well, they're giving the vaccine to people this week, and then they'll mm -hmm. start exposing them, or some of them, I think, I'm not sure what the plan is exactly, but they'll have an answer within a couple of months. And so let's just suppose it works. Well, that would really change everything. And in a way that I think obviously could greatly benefit Trump. What I'm hoping, you know, presidents and leaders often get a bump because of a crisis. Trump got hardly any, but, you know, it's the incompetence, which is what I'm hoping will turn off the, the middle of the country. It's the, it's the bumbling incompetence that I think is likely to be powerful for a lot of people who are not part of his base. But if somehow, you know, if, if there's a scientific breakthrough and the, and the vaccine comes quickly, a lot of people will say, see, it's just like Trump said, it'll just magically go away. So, you know, I just think we can't, it's very hard to game out how things are going to play out, both scientifically and economically. Yeah, yeah, I, w I would place a bet on what seems to be the pervasive incompetence at the moment. I mean, just because even if we had a vaccine today that we knew worked, we have to roll that out to, you know, in our case, 350 million people. And our struggle to even get yeah. testing going Ugh, I know, is instructive. I know. You know, so you just imagine having to produce the yeah. vials of vaccine. And if this is an injectable, right, or as opposed to something that you can inhale, yeah. it's daunting. Yeah, but you know, look, it could, be, it could be invented in China. You know, we're all assuming that it's going to be invented by uh, Americans. But, you know, there's yeah. a lot going on in Europe, in Israel, China. Um, so. And then all the more reason to worry that we're not first in line yeah. to get it, right? Well, that's right. Well, so I don't know how in the weeds you've gotten with Trump supporters. This is a, this, I've commented on this in several places. And it, the thing about the Trump phenomenon that is, has been most mystifying to me is that among his supporters, and not even people who are unsophisticated, even people who, who I'm just, I'm surprised to even discover they are they did support him at all. What I find that is truly mystifying and, and really just confounds any effort to have a, a reasonable conversation about 
politics is a total unwillingness to admit that there's anything consequentially wrong with him. Yeah. That yeah. his lack of understanding of complex issues, that his bluster, his dishonesty, that any of this is in any way negative, right? What I feel like I meet in trying to convince Trump supporters of anything is just an absolute stonewalling on points that just seem objectively true, and, and my, my noticing them is not at all a sign of my own partisanship. Just to say that Trump lies more than is normal in a politician. Uh -huh. Yeah, That is as objectively true as the Pythagorean theorem. There's just no possibility of debating that. And yet, even that will not be conceded. Or if conceded, there'll be some assertion that it just doesn't matter. All politicians yeah. lie is the mantra you will reliably hear at that juncture in the conversation. And there's something like a hundred points like that. It's hard to understand what is at the root of it, because this is not an ordinary form of tribalism. This is not like members of you know, the Christian right who are Christian fundamentalists and they have a whole worldview organized around their, you know, having grown up evangelical or whatever, and now they're voting for whoever it is, George Bush, because he's uh, on their side and he's going to put in the right conservative judges and block yeah. abortion. And it's not part of a whole system of belief like that. It's just, in many cases, the only thing that seems to be organizing it ideologically is a revulsion at the status quo, you know, that was repudiated in the mm -hmm. 2016 election. You know, the business as usual that Hillary Clinton represented, we don't want any more of that. Um, and also, we probably don't want to pay any more in taxes. And you get those two variables you know, clattering around a person's brain, and it, it has summed to something like a cultic unwillingness to admit the obvious just across the board whenever the conversation turns to Trump. Yeah, so let me let me give you a, the a handy a handy little psychological tool that that, that explains that can explain this. So there's a there's a wonderful term. There's research by Tom Gilovich at Cornell, yeah. who studied motivated reasoning, and and I got this little formula from him. He says when we when we want to believe something, we don't look at the evidence and say is the evidence mostly on the side that I want to believe. We just say, can I believe it? Do I have permission to believe it? Meaning. Can I find one example, one argument, one piece of evidence? And if I can, I'm done. I stop thinking because if someone challenges me, I can point to this piece of evidence. Whereas if you don't want to believe something, you say, must I believe it? Am I forced to believe it? So I've had the same experience as you. I have several, you know, I communicate with a lot of people on the left and the right, and I have some very smart correspondents who are Trump supporters. And I've had that exact uh, debate with them about whether there's something wrong with him. And, you know, the psychologists, the psychiatrists say the most likely, most likely diagnosis is narcissistic personality disorder. He makes everything about him. And you and I think that that's as objective a fact as the sun rises in the East, that he does that more than other people. But once you understand that everybody's asking, not, is it true, but must I believe it? Well, the answer is always no. There's almost nothing that you have to believe. Certainly not anything about politics or anything that can't be measured exactly precisely and you know, with no, no, you know, questioning about what the rules are. So you and I can point to, well, look at the fact checkers. They find, you know, 10,000 errors. Well, you know, uh, the, the Trump supporters will simply point out that the fact 
those fact checkers work for the, you know, the, the Washington Post or, or Snopes or other places that have known left-wing biases, and they're right. So it's very hard to get at the truth. And uh, you know, I, I think, of course, there is a truth. But when Trump supporters ask, must I believe it? The answer is always no. And one of the best ways to get a little bit more humility here and, and, and calm down the anger a little bit is to say, just always turn it around and say, is there some different issue on which my side is just as obtuse? And, you know, I think people on the right would point out that, well, you know, people on the left, pretty much anything about race and gender and LGBT and you know, immigration. I mean, there's all these issues that are sacred issues on, on the left, at least in my part of the left and the you know, universities. Yeah. But as you know, I, I spend a lot of time <laughs> hammering the left for its yeah. Yeah, I admire epistemological you for biases your, as well. Yeah, for your guts, yes, yes. So I, I get it from both sides. Yet, I mean, when you just look at, at the way in which we have shed influence in the world in the last few years, where we have just by turns terrified our allies and gratified our actual adversaries. It's just, yeah. it's mind-boggling that you have a, a, something like 40% of American society that sees absolutely no problem with this. I mean, worse, they see some, this as some form of progress. Yeah. Okay. So, let me, so here's the metaphor that's helped me understand the, the, the otherwise just unfathomable state of, of, our, of our country now. So I, I began to feel around 2014, 2015, that something was deeply wrong, like, like something has changed about the universe. And, and I played with this. I just had this uncomfortable feeling for, for a couple of years. And finally, like a year or two ago, I started working this, this metaphor into my talks. Suppose that, suppose that God one day just doubled the gravitational constant. So you know, in our universe, there's like 25 physical constants, you know, the mass of an electron, things like that. And if God just said one day, let's just double the gravitational constant just for fun, like everything would go totally haywire in the physical world. And, you know, planets would move in their orbits and planes would come out of the sky and it would just be, you know, bizarre and disastrous. And uh, I think that what happened is basically that, but in the social world, and that is, you know, connectivity is generally good, but we're now hyper-connected. So that's changing a basic parameter of the universe. We're so connected. But it's more than that. It's not just, you know, like, oh, we're, you know, because giving us telephones and email, I mean, we've been getting more and more connected for centuries, and that's generally been a good thing. It's the nature of the connectivity. It's connectivity in which we are communicating, not privately, but in front of an audience, and the audience rates mm -hmm. the communication. So this, yeah. I think, is what social media has done to us. That is, when Facebook and, and MySpace came out, it was just you know, look, here's my page, here are all my friends, here are the bands I like. You know, there's some showing off, but it wasn't toxic and it was not bad for democracy. I have an article in The Atlantic last November with Tobias Rose Stockwell, where we show how beginning in 2009, when Facebook added the like button and then Twitter copied it and Twitter added the retweet button and Facebook copied it, and then they both algorithmized their, their news feeds much more. So between 2009 and 2012, the nature of human connectivity changed radically in ways that I think are very, very bad for democracy. That is, it wasn't just that we could now talk to each other privately for free. It's that a lot more of our conversation was now in public being rated, which means it was inauthentic, often dishonest, and with a lot more intimidation. You know, I hate Twitter. I hate going on Twitter. I'm also fascinated by it. And I, you know, I, it's like opening a garbage can and watching rats and cockroaches fighting, and there's something fascinating about it. But things really changed after 2012. 
And the Russians noticed it, and they've been trying to mess with our democracy for 50 years. In 2014 is when they realized, hey, there's this great outrage machine that the Americans have built for us. And it's, we don't have to go over there. We don't have to fly agents over to mess them up. We can just sit here in St. Petersburg and do it. So you know, I, I think that you know, I hear your incomprehension. I hear your, you know, your frustration. S- things are terribly wrong. And we could, blame, we could blame those Trump supporters. We could say they must be insane. They must be badly motivated. But that's not likely to be true. They're likely yeah, to be normal yeah, yeah. human beings. And so I think we have to look elsewhere. That's why I'm so mystified, because you know, the people I have in my personal life who are Trump supporters, I know to be you know, smart and well-intentioned. Yeah. And it's just that they're completely aloof with respect to all of the downsides of his personality yeah. and, and what, to my eye, are the obvious risks being magnified by those downsides. Yeah, what an amazing yeah. species we are that we can believe yeah. such obviously false things. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think there's some people who've done some work on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, I agree that the style of communication and it's created a, an information space where it really is just total war all the yes, time that's right. in information terms. That's right. Yeah, and that's no way, yeah. And I don't think our democracy can survive that. I think that if things keep going the way they're going, our country is going to fail catastrophically. I'm not predicting that it will because I don't think things will keep on going the way they're going. But the trends are really bad, and they've been really bad for for at least 10 years, more than that even. So what would you change? I mean, if you could actually get Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg and other people to just take your advice, what, what would you change? So yeah, there's, I mean, there's all kinds of systems I'd change, in t- including you know, elections and Congress and all that. But if we're going to focus on social media, Tobias and I d- offered a couple of suggestions. The most important one, the most important single thing that we think needs to change is there has to be some kind of identity verification for our major platforms. Um, we're not saying that you have to post with your real name. We understand that there's often a need to not to, to use an avatar or a, or a fake name. But imagine, but you know, if democracy is moving into a virtual public square, if if what's fundamental to our democracy is how we engage with each other, and we're no longer doing that in newspapers and real public squares, we're now doing it on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, places like that. I think these places have an obligation to create a kind of public square that that fosters some sort of understanding, some sort of working out, and that really cracks down on intimidation. It is stunning to me that you can make death threats, rape threats, racist rants, you can say anything you want. And the worst that'll happen to you is, you know, eventually your account will be closed down and then you can just make 10 others with no verification. And the Russians figured this out long ago and a lot of Americans do it too. So if we're serious about having a democracy that has a public square and that public square happens on these platforms, I think there has to be at least enough skin in the game that or accountability that when people open an account on, on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or any of the major platforms, ha- they, let's, let's suppose it worked like this, uh, the, the platform would send them out to some other entity, maybe it's a non-government agency, uh, entity, it's a nonprofit. the internet has a number of those, and that, that entity just verifies that you are a real person associated with a country and that you are over 18 or, or not. If you're under 18, it would, you know, there might be another cutoff like 13. Because right now, any 11-year-old can get on any platform that she wants to, and that's a whole other set of issues we can talk about, mm. mental health effects on girls. 
and all kinds of other effects on, on teenagers. But I think that's the most important thing is that we have to reduce trolling, intimidation. You know, I don't want to go into a public square where anybody can like, you know, you know, hit me over the head or throw acid in my face and run away laughing. And there's nothing I can do about it. That's number one. Yeah. So the, how, is, is there a tension between that and our you know, broader concern about free speech? I mean, obviously, these are private platforms and they can regulate speech however they want. But given that they're essentially becoming Internet infrastructure and they are becoming a kind of public square for which there's no alternative, the erring on the side of just basically defaulting to the Constitution has seemed tempting. What, what, yeah. How do you think about free speech concerns? Sure. So I would hate to live in a country in which if somebody espoused an opinion that somebody else or the government didn't like, that that person could be arrested or punished. So to me, that's the core of free speech. You're not, there are no thought crimes. There are no speech crimes other than, obviously, intimidation threats. There are certain categories that are not constitutionally protected. So I would not want, I don't want a solution in which platforms have to look at what you say and and judge each thing you say. What I'd rather is that it's not focused on the thing you say, it's focused on the, the features of the space. And so if, as long as we ana- allow anonymous trolls in, well, do you have a constitutional right to say whatever you want without e- anyone knowing who you are? I don't think so. Do you, have mm-hmm. a right to, do you have a right to reach millions of people? No, you have a right to say what you want without being punished. But you know, as, as is sometimes said, freedom of speech does not mean freedom of reach. The platforms are under no obligation to let you reach millions of people with claims that chloroquine is a, is a miracle cure. That's not, that's not free speech. So I, I think just, you know, the, the, these platforms, they're not, they're not individuals talking you know, in the public square, and they're not newspapers. They're somewhere in between. And we don't, our law doesn't quite account for that yet. But I think just as we have a lot of responsibilities placed on newspapers and magazines, I think we need some sort of in-between thing for these platforms. And that means, no, you can't just open 100 accounts and say whatever you want all day long and attack people without, without anyone knowing who you are. Right. So now what are your thoughts about the 2020 election and you know, now the, the concern about the Biden campaign and his viability, uh, yeah. really on two fronts. I mean, yeah. so that we have the Tara Reid allegations, and surrounding those, we have this fairly credible charge of hypocrisy against the left. Because you know, we're yeah. on the left. We're all about Me Too and believe yep. all women. But then uh, the inconvenient woman shows up, making fairly shocking claims about the only candidate yeah. standing between us and four more years of Trump. And what we see is a either a, a, a massive disinclination to even hear the allegations. And once that becomes untenable, we, what we've now seen is an analysis of the allegations that you know, does, frankly, suggest a kind of double standard where you mm-hmm. know, we, yeah. we could go hard against uh, Brett Kavanaugh when he was nominated for the Supreme Court based on more or less nothing but the fairly dim memory of one person. And we're in a similar situation here and behaving rather differently. I mean, the way I reconcile this, you know, is just that I think Trump is so dangerous. I think four more years of him would be so awful for many of the reasons you mentioned. And I do think there's something especially awful about doubling down on Trump 
for a second term. I mean, what yeah. that says about our country. That's right. It would validate yeah. that it wasn't a fluke. We, we really yeah. meant it. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. We know exactly what we're buying here yeah. and we're going to buy it again for four more yeah. years. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I don't know how American standing mm-hmm. recovers. I mean, we, we literally have to have the Messiah come for 2024 to reboot. But so given that, you know, I honestly don't care what is true here. I mean, it's like I, I can own that he might have done something absolutely awful, which should, in a normal world, disqualify him for the presidency. I don't feel like I know that. I don't feel like I don't know that. I just feel that whoever Joe Biden is or has been, he's better than Trump. Yeah. Just yeah. his facade of yeah. professionalism as a normal politician and a normally empathic person is so much better than what Trump yeah. manages to muster as a person that there's really nothing to decide here. Yeah. For me, that seems to skirt hypocrisy. I'm not inclined to treat Tara Reid's allegations differently than, than uh, Blasey Ford's, and if that's the apt comparison. It's just that the context is so different that in this case, they, they don't matter. Yeah. I consider this a, a political emergency that only has one adequate resolution, which is somebody other than Trump becomes president. Yeah. So without getting into the details, I have not been following the story closely enough to have a view about what might have actually happened. But the key thing that I would want us to focus on here, if you're asking about the implications for the election, is enthusiasm, passion, things like that. Mm. So Trump won the election. He didn't in 2016 not because people loved him and wanted him, but because we have negative partisanship in this country. That is, since 2004, we vote more. Political scientists tell us that you know, the, the strategy for president used to always be you run to the outside to get your party's nomination. And then because America is a fairly moderate country, you have to run to the center to, get the, to win the general. And in 2004, Carl, Karl Rove correctly calculated that the center had shrunk so much that the key was turnout. And so they went with uh, gay marriage to try to inflame the, the evangelicals, and it worked. They got higher turnout on the right. So since then, that has been more of a winning strategy and negative partisanship. Voting against what you don't want mm. is more powerful than voting for what you do want. And that, I think, explains how Donald Trump was able to win in 2016 when it seems as though he didn't even want to win. He made no yeah. preparations for it. He didn't spend any of his own money. He didn't campaign that hard. So he, you know, Hillary Clinton ran a terrible campaign and against someone who wasn't trying to win and was a complete mess and had no ground game and didn't play by the, the, the normal rules. And uh, even though she won the popular vote, he still did win by the recognized rules of the game. So, and that's because her people were not passionate. And you know, the, con- the, the tone in your voice just before when you were saying why, of course, you're going to vote for Biden was similar to what a lot of people were saying about Hillary. Obviously, there were very different issues, but people weren't passionate about her. But they would say, well, yeah, but I mean, but she's better than the alternative. So that is how Trump won. It, it should have, uh, you know, he should have lost in a landslide, but he, but he didn't. My fear is that while Biden is not an inspiring candidate, I do believe the people have known him for a long time who say that he's a fundamentally decent man. I that doesn't mean that he didn't do something inappropriate with a, with a young woman in the Senate. I have no idea. But the, there's not a lot of enthusiasm for him before. People generally like him. Democrats, I think, were okay with him. But a lot of groups were not. And, and it was the big question was, you know, will the people who wanted Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, you know, will they come back to vote for him in, in the fall? 
And now you add in this, which is going to alienate a lot of people, particularly women and particularly young women for whom these issues are much more salient these days. So I'm extremely concerned about the fall election because I think the Democrats, you know, the, the Republicans, I was, I was fully expecting the Democrats to win, no matter who the nominee was, unless it was Sanders, I was expecting the Democrats were, were going to win mm. because of the passion issue. But now, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. And if, if Biden is not, if, if a number of constituencies are not enthusiastic, they're not going to turn out, especially if there are still risks to turning out, and especially if mail-in voting is not easy and universal. For God's mm. sakes, it's, you know, during a pandemic, of course, we should all be voting by mail or by internet or by, or by other remote methods. But everything's so politicized and there's so much incompetence that that may not happen. So I don't know what is going to happen. And it's another reason for, for alarm. What about the perception? This is the second thing that's dogging Biden, the perception of his senescence, essentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's obviously lost a step with respect to his yeah. speech and memory. And again, we're, we're in an environment where there is an asymmetry here with respect to the, the way his glitches play to the average audience and the way Trump's glitches play. I mean, Trump is a producer of word salad yeah. much, if not most of the time, and yet it doesn't make him seem old. No, that's, that's just right. more Trump, right? It's like he's got the energy of a 20-year-old on Adderall. Yeah. So he's full of life and he's just chaos, whereas every single glitch, every hiccup in his speech for Biden you're holding your breath, hoping he can get to the end of the sentence. Yeah. The optics are so different. It's surprising. And I mean, this is the other thing that worries me. No, that's, that's right. This is, this is why I was, not, I was not a fan of Joe Biden. I mean, I like him personally as a person. I agree with you. He's, you know, he's a reasonable person. But he, was, you know, he ran for president twice before, and he was a bad candidate. And he was not, he's not a good campaigner. He's not eloquent. And, you know, as a psychologist, what I can add is that the research on cognitive aging is just stunning. People are at their peak in terms of fluency and, and speed in their 20s. And then it's kind of downhill, downhill from there until you get to your 50s or 60s. And then this downward slope accelerates. So in your 70s, it really accelerates. So most 70-year-olds are still doing okay on cognitive tests, although they're not nearly as sharp as they used to be. But as you go beyond 70, by the time you get to 80, most 80-year-olds are not doing so well. Obviously, you know, some are. But if Biden was not a good candidate long ago when his brain was much younger, I think it's, you know, there's not much reason to think that he's going to be much better now. And I think we're seeing the signs of that. So as you say, it's also the issue of vitality. And that matters in politics. People want a vigorous leader, not one who seems frail or scattered. So for a lot of reasons, you know, I think that obviously most or many Democrats wish they had perfect candidate. Many Democrats think that there were better candidates. And uh, with, the, with the Tara Reid allegations, now the, you know, the candidacy is even weaker. So my God, is this a drama? I mean, just when you think it can't get more insane, it gets more insane. So who do you think he should pick for his VP? Uh, that, I, you know, that I don't know. I've not given any thought to. I, I imagine that he committed to, well, I don't know why, but you know, he mi- committed to picking a woman, I suppose, knowing that, this, that these allegations were coming. So you know, once he's done that, I, I don't have, I'm not, a, so I'm not a political prognosticator. I, I can't mm. read the, you know, the horse race politics. I don't have a view on that. Part of your analysis of what social media has done to us and the new uh, 
kind of balkanization of our epistemology has you, you've you've spent some time focusing on the young. I mean, you know, Gen Z and mm-hmm. below. I mean, now we're we're soon dealing with with a cohort of people for whom social media is as common a fact of the world as water, which is to say, there's never been a time where they were without yeah. it. Yeah, and we're also having a, a younger generation that seems destined to graduate into a economic environment that is just as objectively punishing as mm-hmm. any in our lifetime. I mean, when you think of you know what it'll be like to be looking for a job in six months, unless we reboot here in some way that just is ushers in a renaissance of a sort that will be fundamentally surprising. It's hard to see how we escape a fairly dismal economy yeah. for a, a good long while. How do you think about the cohort you're yeah. currently teaching as undergraduates? What's the near future hold? Yeah. So paradoxically, it, 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 could, be, it could end up in the long run being good for them. That is, you know, clearly it's going to be devastating to their economic prospects in the near term. And research on previous generations that graduate into bad economies shows that it does hurt their earnings for the rest of their life on average. So I'm not saying this is good overall, but the trajectory, the, the, the outlook for Gen Z was horrific. It was terrible. Their rates of anxiety, depression, self-harm, and suicide have been spiking upwards since 2012, roughly, especially for, well, suicide is up for both, both genders, but depression, anxiety is especially up for girls. And so Greg Lukianoff and I wrote this book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And we think the two major causes, there are many, but the two major causes are the vast overprotection, the safetyism that we put on kids in the 90s. We stopped letting them play outside. We told them the world was dangerous. We let them just play with devices inside. And the normal risk-taking, the normal adventures, the normal testing the limits of your physical abilities, and that we, we denied them beginning in the 90s and early 2000s. And so this, we think, is the major reason why Gen Z is coming out so much more fragile and depressed and anxious than the millennials were. So we're talking mm-hmm. about kids born 1996 and later. The other factor, we believe, is too early exposure to social media. And here I actually have some news to, news to report, brand new uh, news. The long-running debate over screen time, I think, is actually nearing a resolution. That is, in, in the coddling of the American mind, Greg and I focused on social media. That's what we thought was worst. But we did sometimes refer to screen time or that parents should limit screen time. And some other researchers pushed back on us and said, no, look, you know, here's our evidence is that the amount of hours spent on screens isn't related to mental illness. And then uh, Gene Twenge and I uh, reanalyzed data and, and are basically able to show that consistently, if you look at almost all the data sets that show no overall effect of all screen time, well, if you dig in and you say, okay, not all screens, including TV, but rather just social media, and not all kids, but just girls, then you consistently find a relationship between heavy social media use and depression and anxiety. And it shows up in lots of data sets, lots of different studies, and experiments back this up that when people go off of social media, they tend to get happier. So anyway, all I'm saying is, I don't think parents need to freak out about screens per se, if what they're concerned about is depression, anxiety, but they should still look out if what they care about is that their kids actually do other things like go outside or learn to climb trees or go out with their friends in person, which of course Mm. will happen again someday, but not this year. Yeah. Well, so what do you do with the fact that now a concern about the dangers 
even invisible dangers out in the world seems all too yeah. warranted, right? So now we have yeah. a cohort of kids. I mean, I've got two daughters, six and 11, who are now quarantined yeah. and having a fairly unusual experience. I mean, they, they are they, happily are limitations on screen time have been impressively relaxed. So they're, they're enjoying that. But yeah, but tell me about social media. Is your 11 year old on Instagram? No, no, okay, no, good. no. All, yeah, all that. I mean, I, I'm going to be as conservative as, as can be achieved on that front. But there are elements of it that are starting to leak into her experience now just because of yeah. the classroom is on you know Zoom and they have common projects where they're commenting on each other's work and so they're, mm. and they're texting and so there's communication in front of an audience happening you know, a fair amount. And how that differs from social media really is just that it's yeah. not open to the rest of society. It's just her among her friends. But even there, it just seems to me like a whole new module has been installed in her brain, yeah. which is, you know, her attention is being captured by somebody else's response to something she put out there. And that, you know, that That's has right. many of the features of what that would concern one with social media. Yeah. That's right. So to the extent that screens foster direct face-to-face -face interaction, talking on the phone by FaceTime, that's all great. There's no problem at all there. I actually bought my son an Xbox when this all hit. He wanted one for a long time. And the research doesn't seem to show that it's related to anxiety, depression, although it is very addictive and it does tend to fill up all the available time. Mm. So he has three hours a day on Xbox, but it's great that he, you know, he's really playing it with his friends. So to the extent that these devices facilitate real direct interactions, that's great. But yes, as you say, the problem is a lot of these are indirect interactions where people are rating and commenting, and that seems to be especially hard on girls. So I think this is, yeah, so this could get worse. But here's where I think things could get reset. There is actually danger out there now because of the virus. Now, not that much for kids, but it's a physical thing. Whereas what, what we were getting to before this hit was emotional safety. We were treating kids that, as though they were so fragile that if they were exposed to bad news, that they would somehow be damaged. And what I'm hoping is that this, this pandemic will reset some of our safetyism and move us away from sort of the trivial things we've been looking at, the, the effort to protect kids' self-esteem, the effort to protect them from words and ideas. So uh, having more adversity in your childhood could end up being beneficial. And this is the idea of anti-fragility which is really central to our book. The, mm. the word was coined by Nassim Taleb. Uh, you know, lots of people have many views about, about him, but yeah. I'll just say <laughs> that that idea, but that idea, I think that idea. Yeah, that um, that is idea a is a good one. one. Yeah, I should say yeah. he, he, he has views about many people too, so. <laughs> yes, I've noticed. <laughs> but, so I just want, I don't want to miss this one point. So, but what you just said suggests to me there's another trap to fall in here, which is yeah, overprotection. if I'm trying to curate, just go back to where what you just asked me with respect to my allowing my daughter the social media experience. I mean, one, the impulse there is to protect her from the onslaught of negative or, you know, destabilizing or anxiety producing information that I don't want her to have. And it seems to me there are two potential pitfalls there. One is just this, it's another form of coddling, right? I'm mm -hmm. trying to protect her from something that she should develop the tools to just assimilate, or one could say that. And then there's just this other feature, which I think is natural to worry about, which is if all of her friends are on 
yeah. Instagram and she's the one who isn't, well, then then there's just a, a social exclusion penalty that you would imagine a, a, that's, a young that's teen right. would, that's would right. pay. Yeah. So to take your first point, it does seem as though I might be contradicting myself. I'm saying that in general, kids should be exposed to adversity. They should learn from experience and you should let them make mistakes. Yes, in general, that is true. But there are certain things such as, let's say, alcohol, heroin, prostitution, gambling, where we say, you know what, my 11-year-old is not ready for that, you know, maybe when she's 16, 18, or well, obviously not prostitution. But the point is that there are certain things that an adolescent brain is just not, not ready for. Right. And, and what I found from speaking with a lot of middle school and high school kids is I, I ask them, all right, so you know, how many of you have been shamed on social media? Okay, all hands go up. And I say, now, how many of you think that being shamed on social media toughens you? That is, you go through it and you say, you know what? I don't care what people think of me. I, you know, I've been shamed so many times. I don't care anymore. No hands go up. How many of you think it makes you more cautious, more fearful? You double check and triple check yourself. You're not authentic. Most hands go up. So there's something about public shaming and exposure that is especially unhealthy for middle school kids and especially for girls. Mm. So I'm not saying, you know, I, I, it's a losing battle to keep it out of high school. But look, the minimum age, you have to be 13 to get an account. But by fifth or sixth grade, most of the girls have it in many schools. And that is something that I'm really trying to change. Uh, as long as there is now evidence that social media is, is particularly bad for girls. Now, the millennials weren't harmed by it. They didn't get this until they were in their 20s. But I, I suspect that middle school is the place to focus. I think we really need to try to get social media out of middle school. And mm -hmm. that would solve your second question. Because yes, if, if, if it's only your kid, you know, when I kept my son off of video games, he did feel excluded because the other boys were all on it all day long. So it has to be done systemically. And that's why I think middle school is the place to focus. If anybody's listening to this who has any influence over middle school, try to get a school-wide policy that discourages parents from letting their kids, from discourages anyone from having a social media account until they get to high school. Wait mm -hmm. till they're 14 or so. Wait till they're in high school. But you know, middle school is so hard already, especially on girls. So don't make it harder. So now uh, let's pivot to topics which, you know, on their face may seem impressively detached from our, the, the current concerns, but not really. I mean, I want to talk about human well-being and experiences of the positive end of the spectrum of human psychology and, and how we conceptualize this terrain. And this is, if anything, an interest in this has been heightened by our current circumstance because so many people have been forced into something that impressively resembles a kind of retreat, right? I mean, the, the people are experiencing solitude to a degree that is not normal for them. And for most of us, there's been a forced reprioritization of values. We have a, a vantage point from which to see how we've been living all these years and the kinds of things that have captivated our attention. And much of that has been stripped away, or at least shuffled to a degree that many people are, are experiencing even a, a silver lining to this quarantine because they're experiencing better time with their families in many cases, or this heightened sense of uncertainty, the sense that really anything can happen at any time. And that's always been true, right? But we live most of our lives as though we take a lot for granted, and taking those things for granted amounts to a kind of death yeah. denial and a sense of control that has never really been factual. So there's a, there's a lot to, to motivate a, a conversation about things like 
meditation and psychedelics and what they can reveal about the nature of the self and experiences of self-transcendence. So um, let's dive into the, the deep end of the pool, John. Yep. Perhaps to start, give me a sense of your, your background here. I know you spent some time in India at some point, in, either in, in graduate school or as a postdoc, but remind me what, how you came to be interested in these topics. Sure. So you know, because I study morality, I've been interested in moral transformations. You get that from religious experiences. William James' book, Varieties of Religious Experiences, full of all these sudden moral rebirth from an encounter with, with, with God. So I've always been interested in these self-transcendent experiences and their capacity to change people's moral nature. But actually, there's a, there's a, a very personal reason for it. And, and I've, been, I've been looking forward to talking about this with you because uh, you know, you've been out on this for a long time, talking about psychedelics. And, you know, they were, those experiences were transformational for me in ways that set me up to do the research that I later did. And I've only really just sort of noticed that in the last year or two, as I've been reflecting on this year, 1993, that where everything changed for me and, and how it set me up to be on the path that I, that I now am on. And so actually, if you don't mind, I, I'll, I'll tell you the story. Yeah, um, please. Because, you know, knowing that I was going to be talking about this with you, I've really been looking forward to, to talking with, with you in particular on this. I went back last night and I read, I reread the journals that I kept when I was a postdoc at, in the University of Chicago in 1993, 94. And, and uh, I found some fun stuff. So, so just briefly, so the story is just this, that, so I, I went to Penn for grad school. And after my PhD, I, I got a wonderful position with Richard Schwader, a brilliant anthropologist at uh, the University of Chicago. And I was preparing to go to India. I got a fellowship to go to India for three months to do research on morality, on especially the ethics of purity and pollution. So I was reading the Bhagavad Gita and, and reading about Hinduism. And I'd always been interested in Buddhism as well. And at the same time, also, Rick Schwader is just brilliant at contradiction. That is, if someone asserts something, he'll, he'll try denying it to see if that leads anywhere. And so it was really fun to work with him and to just question things with him. So all that's going on. And then I go back to Philadelphia one day, one weekend in 1993, and my, my ex-girlfriend, who I'm still friends with, had gotten some acid from somewhere. And so our, our group of friends from grad school all did it. And that, that night is really, uh, you know, as, as many people speak about being reborn, I mean, it really feels like, okay, June 10th, 1993, that was the mm -hmm. night that everything changed for me. So, so last night when I was going back and looking through my journals, I want to start with an entry that I made a few months before that, where I write about how I'm a type A personality, I'm addicted to control of my environment, which leads to impatience and bossiness and spoils my serenity. I worry too much. I'm too rigid. I'm too moralistic. So that's who I was. I was kind of, you know, uptight, hard driving. I look back on what I wrote and I say, wow, I wasn't a very nice person. And you know, I'd been writing that sort of stuff for years and, and you know, trying to work on it. And I'd, I'd done therapy a couple of times. And then this one night, June 10th, 1993, it's like everything got fixed. You know, everything changed. And I was able to make the changes that I'd been trying to make for years. It seemed as though they were made in one night. And I, I didn't experience any anger of any kind for several months after that, which had never mm. happened before. Mm. Well, so it really was a night of transformation, which then, you know, as a social psychologist interested in the mind, I then dove in. I, I read everything that I could 
and about you know the research done in the 60s about how they work uh, neurochemically and i i also then tried mushrooms uh, and my 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 new girlfriend in chicago she and i grew them together and we we explored that and so in a variety of ways it changed it changed me in ways that that you write about it changed me in ways that that made me much less moralistic and that made it possible for me about 15 years later to step out of the the moral matrix that i was in and really try to understand everyone in their own terms rather than condemning people so quickly so that's the sort of the big picture of how i how i got into it mm, interesting so your first experience with a psychedelic was that June 10th, 1993, acid trip. You hadn't done mushrooms or anything like that nope, prior? that was my first, oh. right. And when did you first speak about this publicly, you know, as a scientist? Is it something that you were in the closet or around for a while? Or Yeah, no, I was completely in the closet. And in fact, I, as I was looking through my journals from 1993, I realized, because like, I was talking to everybody about it when it happened. Mm. And then at a certain point, I wrote in my journal, like, whoa, I'd better clam up. Like, if this ever gets out that I'm into this, this is going to discredit me. Because at the time, you know, it still was very taboo. Yeah. So I just decided not to talk about it. And I never talked about it publicly until um, last year I was, in, I was in the UK and I did uh, London Reel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, I talked about it with, uh, with the host there because he, you know, he was into it. And I decided, what the hell? You know, why not? And so we did talk about it there for about 10, 15 minutes. And that was my very first time speaking about it publicly. But then the reason I especially want to talk about it with you is that I saw on Twitter, I guess a you know, few weeks ago or months ago, you had this beautiful metaphor. And this was, I think, where was this? I'll just read, I'll just read the, it was, mm. it's this thing that starts, you're wading into a roiling ocean of meaning with a proverbial thimble. And what you bring back in that thimble just can't begin to indicate the immensity of the experience. And then here's the key line. This is what really got me, because this is exactly what happened for me. You say, it's as though we lived in a universe where if you just reached into your right pocket with your left hand, rather than pull out your wallet, you'd pull out the Andromeda galaxy. And that's, that's exactly what it was like. Mm. Yeah, it just, it's so out of scale with the proximate cause of the experience. I mean, the idea yeah. that, a mu- that behind a mushroom some version of this experience awaits every human brain, right? It's just, yeah. it seems impossible, even no matter how many times you, you make that journey. So how many times have you taken LSD and psilocybin or, or you know, mushrooms, whatever form, yeah. since? Well, I went through a period over the next two years where I would, I would do one or the other every, you know, every couple of months. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I don't know, maybe about, somewhere between 20 and 30 times total in my life. Right. And then also, and I tried a bunch of other things. I was, you know, I'm very high in openness to experience. I'm very curious and I'm an awe junkie. I, I love the emotion of awe. So I, I tried a lot of things and found that those two plus MDMA plus ecstasy right. are the ones that, that really affected me. And there's, you know, some of the, you know, like um, Yage and uh, other things I've not tried, but yeah, those are the three that I really like. Right. Now, you know, you're a psychologist, and I mean, have you ever had clinical experience, or are you, are you purely research? No. I'm, yeah, I'm not a clinical psychologist at no. all. But, you know, psychology is your field, and, you know, as you are well aware, and I think our, most of our listeners will know, that there's, there's really been historically a battle between 
two camps over this ground. I mean, I, I you know, there are more people involved, but I think you could put Freud against James here. And, you know, Freud's, one of his legacies is that he dubbed this, any experience of this sort to be something analogous to what he called the, the oceanic feeling of oneness. And, and for him, this really represented a pathological regression to the womb, essentially. I mean, this was just not, this is, he wasn't denying that it was possible to have an experience like this, but it was a form of madness or dysfunction. Whereas James was intensely interested in experiences of this kind across the board and in their spiritual and religious contexts and, and mm-hmm. indications. And, you know, so he, he thought there was something that they said just of necessity about the furthest reaches of human well-being, and they were, you know, a fit object of personal research. And the, and the field has really, for the most part, even though Freud has been, people have lost their interest in him because of there, there was just so yeah, much first, pseudoscience yeah. in, in his canon. I mean, he was a great writer, but he, he I mean, the connection between much of what he wrote and actual empirical science is, is loose, yeah. to say the least. But with behaviorism and other influences, and just the apparent necessity of focusing on all that's wrong with the human mind, and then the, the growing understanding of what could go wrong with the human brain and how that, was, that could mm-hmm. be studied neurologically. We've spent the better part of almost two centuries, you know, at least 150 years, learning more and more about human unhappiness and dysfunction. And the birth of what is now called positive psychology has, you know, while it's, it seems to have been accomplished, there has been much less focus on, on human well-being and flourishing and to say nothing of things like self-transcendence, you know, in its good forms until very, very recently. And, and yeah. so, and, and, you know, mindfulness has become a, a topic of interest in research. How hopeful are you that we've turned a corner there and the floodgates of, of useful knowledge will open? Oh, I'm very hopeful. I think Marty Seligman diagnosed it correctly in 1998 or so when he, when he was president of the American Psychological Association. And he said, uh, in psychology, we have lots of tools to take you from negative six up to zero, mm. but we don't have a lot to take you from zero up to positive six. And you had to go to the pop psych section of your local bookstore and get Deepak Chopra or something like that. And so he started a movement, and it was very much based within science. It didn't, it didn't spin out to become just a, you know, a popular freak show. And it went mainstream, and, and uh, you know, research on happiness and well-being is done by you know, people get Nobel Prizes for it, in fact, in economics. So, right. so I, think, I think positive psychology, and Marty Seligman in particular, in being very thoughtful about how to build a movement and, and, and fund research, has really institutionalized it, and I think it's here to stay. And then the fact that the fact that the research on psychedelics, which were so taboo, you know, I think Timothy Leary, I, you know, I, I love him, I love reading about him, but I think he really did a disservice by freaking out people right. you know, with his irresponsible use, and that, that led to the you know, research being eliminated for a long time. The fact that that research is now being done you know, at Johns Hopkins and you know, here at NYU, so, I, I, and I think the proof is in the pudding. That is, the data on these recent studies that repeat the Good Friday experiment show that most people who do it get these benefits. Now, here, of course, you might want to put in all of your caveats that you that you do whenever you speak about this. That mm-hmm. is not for everyone, and there are there are dangers. But 
the fact that this is a kind of a reliable, it's a more reliable, it's an easier way to reach the kind of states that many people want than is, say, mindfulness or meditation, which takes a lot of work over a long time. So I, I do think that it's going to be very hard to, to put the cat back in the bag now. And I think that we will see, we will see much more widespread acceptance, especially of, of psilocybin and MDMA. Hmm. Let's talk about self-transcendence, because it's an interesting intellectual problem to differentiate the various types. I mean, to talk about what sort of self we think is being transcended and to untangle the clearly positive and, and normative versions of this from the scary or pathological ones. I don't know how much work has been done on this. I know that you have at least one paper that with Andrew Newberg and other co-authors that has sketched this territory somewhat, but there's just this fact that many of the ways of speaking about the nature of consciousness shorn of the feeling of self, as I do in the, in the Waking Up app a lot, it can sound like the language that gets used in the DSM-5 for yeah, something like, right. you know, depersonalization, you know, derealization disorder, right? So it's like, it's natural in a, in a meditative context, like in the the Tibetan Dzogchen teachings, they'll talk about the dreamlike character of experience, right? Yeah. But that phrase viewed through a clinical lens does sound like yeah. derealization, right? And yeah. how do you think about the, the way in which a, the normal default sense of self can be undermined and how we differentiate what's normative from what's just sure. an obvious source of human suffering? Yeah. So I think the, the set of ideas that has most shaped, most shaped my work across many domains is evolutionary thinking about multi-level selection. And you know, this is obviously a controversial area in biology, and it's one where you and I might disagree, but, but I am very influenced by, by Darwin's writings on this in, in The Descent of Man, and uh, then later David Stone Wilson, E.O. Wilson. And the basic idea is very simple. It's just that, you know, of course, evolution works. If you want to understand how we're designed, I think Richard Dawkins is a great guide, and he really helped me. It was the first evolution book I read in college. And it is mostly the you know, competition of individuals against individuals, and whichever genes made individual survival machines that won that competition, they went on to have more genes in the next generation. And so you, you'll understand most things if you look at individual versus individual. But for some species, like bees and ants, obviously, the competition is not really between individuals. It's between groups or hives. And that leads to adaptations at the hive level. And adaptations for a successful hive then also feed down and create bee, uh, you know, bees and ants that are good hive members. Well, similarly for humans, we have always been competing with the individuals near us, but for hundreds of thousands, and really I, you could say millions given territoriality issues, we are the descendants of the groups that outcompeted other groups. And so most of our nature can be understood as a product of individual level selection, but we have this ability to be like bees in a hive. We have this ability to be very groupish. And a book that really influenced me here that I think your audience would really enjoy is Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Dancing in the Streets, A History of Collective, collective Joy or Happiness. Mm. At any rate, she covers raves and political rallies, sporting events, and all the things we do in which we, lo we long to lose ourselves in a group. It's ecstatic. We're thrilled. And uh, this is part of human nature. 
this is not abnormal. This is normal human nature. And she makes the point that Christian worship used to be much more ecstatic. And that at some point, I forget which century, people sat down in pews and listened to a sermon. But before then, for a long time, it was danced. It was much more ecstatic. So to get back to your question, if you see us as, you know, like a formula that I use in the righteous mind is we're 90% chimp, 10% B. So we're basically products of individual selection, but with this recent, you know, at least a couple hundred thousand years of, of group versus group competition that led to tribalism. We're very good at being tribal rights, tribal practices, that those are normal and natural. And a lot of those are symbolic. A lot of them, they use drugs. They use psychedelic drugs in many traditional societies. And the goal is to foster a sense of oneness. So I see human nature as, you know, just as our brains are organized so that we can rapidly get into approach or withdraw positive or negative emotion, threats or opportunities, in the same way, we can move back and forth between individual and group. Rabbi Sachs, Jonathan Sachs, has a wonderful book called Morality Out now where he talks about the I to we dimension. And most societies, people spend a fair amount of time on the we side. We're, all, we're also selfish, so people always spend time on the I side. But crises, especially a foreign attack, really pushes us to the we side. And this pandemic has done so too, although not as well as a foreign attack would. At any rate, my point is, having rigid ego boundaries and a strong sense of self sometimes is normal. And feeling that you're part of a group where you're not so focused on yourself, you're merging with something larger, is also normal and healthy. And I think, as Aaron Reich says, in modern secular Western societies, we've really lost touch with that. A lot of people find it very dissatisfying. And so they seek out raves, they seek out psychedelic experiences, they try in all kinds of ways to change their consciousness, to get back to this state that is really part of our birthright, part of our normal human repertoire. Hmm. Well, it seems to me that self-transcendence is separable from the variable of how one feels in relation to a group. I mean, obviously, it's the kind of thing that can be experienced yeah. in solitude and, and is often yes. sought in solitude. The groupishness part is interesting, and there it's one of the things that's difficult about this terrain is that there are many aspects here which strike me as orthogonal. So for instance, I think positive affect is orthogonal to ethics. I mean, I think you can feel yeah. ecstasy for bad reasons, right? Like I, I have no doubt mm -hmm. that a suicide bomber, given what he believes, very likely feels something that I would recognize as ecstasy or you know, a very heightened positive affect right before he pushes the button. It would be only rational for him to feel that given what he, he actually believes is about to happen. And so I would stand outside of that project and say, well, his nucleus accumbens has been hijacked by some rather bad ideas, and it would be better if it were hijacked by the pro-social ideas of how good it feels to give to charity or solve complex problems, or you can continue the list from there. So feeling fusion with a group can be the ecstasy of, of a rave, and you know, it obviously can be heightened by psychedelics but it can be the ecstasy of a mob destroying a city or you know as you know a bunch of yeah. soccer hooligans rioting or it can be as you know I know you know because you've referenced this before it's widely reported that the primary experience of fighting in war for those who yeah. make it back intact is 
that was about as high an experience as they've ever had, right? In terms of the fusion with their mm-hmm. fellow soldiers. It's the most exciting video game anyone has ever played. The stakes are as high as possible, and nothing ever seems quite that meaningful ever again. Right. Now we have two files open here. There's whatever we might want to say about the individual in relation to groups, but then there's just this larger issue of what it means to transcend the feeling of self in any context, whether you're alone in a cave for 10 years or you're in the middle of a you know, a rock concert, and and the ways in which that can seem either normative or pathological. Yeah. I, I take your point that in theory they are separable, in theory they are orthogonal. But I think in practice they are they are correlated pretty highly. That is, there are lots of ways of of achieving a self-transcendent experience. And I this is what fascinated me when I was looking into the, the moral effects. The, you know, obviously psychedelic drugs, some meditators achieve it, near-death experiences. There was a, a guy at UVA who collected near-death experiences. There's all sorts of ways. It's almost as though there's a button in the in the brain that people push and they lose themselves. And they what comes out is pretty similar across ways of pushing the button. That is, people don't come back and say, now I want to be super powerful. Now I want to destroy things. No, they come back almost always saying, wow, I, I want to help people, or I want to devote my life to serving God, or I don't care about material possessions as much. What matters is people. And so however you push this button, it tends to have a kind of a moral reset effect. Now, I take your point that you could end up doing things that are harmful, but, the, but, but by any, any view of whether someone's heart is more open and loving mm. or not, when you lose yourself, your heart tends to open. And so there is, in this paper that, that, we, that we wrote, so David Yadin led it when he was a grad student at Penn, and, um, and Andrew Newberg and Ralph Hood and David Vago were the other authors with me on it. We distinguish between what we call the annihilational component of self-transcendent experience. That is, there's a, a loss of self, a loss of ego boundaries, and Andrew Newberg's work on how you actually you physically lose the map of your own body. So there's the self-annihilation part. Uh, and then the second part is the relational component. You feel connected to others or to the universe or to love. And so while they are separable in theory, they tend to go together. So that was really our point in that, in that paper. And that, I think, is what actually can bring us back not just to psychedelics, but actually even all the way back to the COVID pandemic and, uh, and this massive shared experience that we're all going through. Mm. And so let me just put one other idea on the table, and that is the emotion of awe. So this is something that I began studying in 2003 with my friend Dacher Keltner, a social psychologist at UC Berkeley. And we reviewed all the research we could find on awe, which was almost nothing in psychology. But we found a lot in sociology, religious studies, philosophy. And we concluded, we wrote up this paper, people can find it if you just Google, approaching awe, a moral, spiritual, and aesthetic emotion. Mm. We concluded that there are two essential features of awe, vastness and need for accommodation. So any situation that presents us with something that is vast and that doesn't fit into our existing structures, we just can't make sense of it. We have to change our structures. Any such experience will be some version of awe. And then there are other appraisals our mind makes that will flavor it. So sometimes there's threat. You know, you, you hear about, uh, you know, in the, old, in the Hebrew Bible, you know, people trembling before God. So there's threat, there's beauty, 
There's perceptions of extraordinary ability, perceptions of virtue, encounters with the supernatural. So there are all these other appraisals that will give you different flavors of awe. But vastness and need for accommodation is the key. And my God, have we been going through that these last three or four months. There has not been anything this big since World War II. I mean, 9-11 was big, but it wasn't everybody. It was, yeah. you know, it, it didn't involve the whole world in the same way. And it was over quickly. This is the first truly shared experience. We have the technology to share it in real time. So this is an extraordinary awe experience for the whole planet. And here's the cool thing about awe. It seems to function as a reset button. The stories you read about in religious texts, like Arjuna getting a third eye from Krishna in the, in the uh, Mahabharata, mm. or Saul on the road to Damascus, they lead people to drop their old way of thinking and take on a new way of thinking, including new loyalties. And this, I think, is what so many people are hoping for. This is what I hear a lot in discussion about what's going to happen to us because of the pandemic. So many people are hoping that this will push a reset button. And it might. It really could. All experiences push a reset button. And at first, it was very hopeful. Like, wow, maybe, you know, we'll be able to solve global problems. And maybe we'll finally appreciate frontline workers and people who earn minimum wage and, you know, the need for help. So there was all this thought that maybe this really will help us, give us a chance to fix what's wrong with our society. And that lasted a few weeks until the internal fighting broke out. So I'm a little less hopeful now. But this is a long unfolding experience, and it is in many ways a self-transcending one. Mm. How do you think about the potential misapplication of awe or the mm. there's the capacity? I mean, it seems to me that awe is a more than anything else, a quality of attention. And so if you take mm -hmm. you can discover this through psychedelics or you can through meditation. I mean, it's really any arbitrary object can be the fit mm. circumstance for all. Yeah. And yet, in other states of consciousness, not every object seems to have warranted the awe, or at least the meaning you found in contemplating that quite ordinary rock while on mushrooms yeah, is right. not something that can be communicated to someone who's not also on mushrooms. Right. And therefore, it doesn't survive contact with the rest of culture. And, it, and if you were someone who couldn't get back to the, the lumpen consensus trance where people are, are not readily captivated by ordinary rocks, yeah. you would seem like there was something wrong with your mind, right? You can't be the person who's always blown away by every rock and still get much done in this world. So at minimum, it seems like we would want to be able to move in and out of these states of consciousness on demand as opposed to getting stuck someplace where the meaning we apprehend in existence is something that actually can't be communicated, or it seems it will seem pathological by virtue of the fact that the target selection is is random. Yeah, but I think the 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 effect of these states, the point of them, the value of them, is not that we can communicate anything to anyone else. I think the value of them is that they change us mm. in very positive ways, and they open us up to ideas and and to wisdom, and and they change the way that we are. So here's, a, as I was going through my, my journals uh, last night, I, here's just one other short quote that I think is relevant here. So I wrote, anger is almost never justified except strategically. I mean, there are times when you might need to show it to get something done, but anger is almost never justified. I felt on this mushroom trip, as I have on acid trips, that I was somehow above or outside of morality. And, I, I, and it just seemed like a game that other people play. 
And then there's this. Philosophical positions that I have long been acquainted with have no power or grip until I somehow feel them from the inside. There are only a few or a few dozen major insights or truths about life, and we've all heard most of them. Hearing concepts, even grasping them intellectually, does not bring enlightenment. I am now even more convinced that the intellectual life is a pallid and irrelevant life, overconfident that its way of knowing is the way of knowing. End quote. And so the point is, you know, I'd been reading Buddhism and Hinduism. I'd been reading about all these ideas about transcending duality and the self is an illusion. And I'd struggled to understand that since college. But then you have this experience, and maybe you have it from looking at a rock. But the point isn't, hey, what have I learned about the rock? The point is that you have this experience in which you finally can feel deeply what has been passed down to us in words for thousands of years as human wisdom. And the effect of it generally is that you become less petty, less angry, Mm. less judgmental. And so that's why I'm so grateful to these drugs and these experiences and the people who went before me and the people who helped me find them, because they helped me step out of my petty moralism that had been my personality before. Uh, They helped me step out of the judgmentalism and really try to listen to people and try to understand why we do things. And so as a social psychologist who studies morality, I don't know if I could have done it if I didn't one day reach into my pocket and pull out the Andromeda galaxy. Mm. Yeah, that, that is a, a humbling admission. And really, it speaks to the, the usefulness of these drugs. It's just that you know, I, I'm quite sure that given who I was at age 18, had I been presented with the, the the prospect of meditating, I would have said, why would I want to do that? And <laughs> yeah, it's too hard. And had I actually attempted it, I would have gotten frustrated early enough such that I just think it's very low probability I would have taken it to you know, any place of much interest. It just would have been, I would have looked inside and, and seen more or less nothing and not recognized the reason that it was not interesting. Yeah, so so many people are in that category where unless they've had a glimpse of a massive state change in their own consciousness, right. the possibility that experience could be much different than it's tending to be, just is, it's either it's an abstraction that they, would, they might entertain, but there's no way of making it real but for overriding their, their, their normal habit patterns of mind. And yeah, I mean, it's just as an advertisement yeah. for a different way of being, it's, it's really hard to imagine something stronger than the psychedelics that are out there. Yeah, and that's why I think so many people took the path from psychedelics to meditation. Yeah. I remember when I read about the, the, the cultural history, oh, that great book, Storming Heaven. Yeah. Um, I love that book. book yeah. That, you know, yeah, and, and, and that, you know, that a lot of the early explorers, they then went into meditation, and obviously that's the path that you took. And I've been, at, and I, I can't remember if I mentioned this by email, but I'm teaching a positive psychology course this semester at NYU at Stern, and um, everybody has to do a self-change project to make themselves happier. And I, I'm doing it along with the class, and I picked meditation as my self-change. I'd, I'd done it a few times before, but not with great success. And it was one of the students in the class who suggested uh, using the, the Waking Up app. And so I'm very grateful to him and, and to you, Sam, for that. It's been working, working wonderfully. Oh, cool. But what I do is I. Uh, every other day, I, I use I, I, what I used to use is Insight Timer. So I just have a you know, silent meditation with a couple of bells. But then every other day, I listen to you 
guide me through practices and give me concepts. And so the, it's, the, it's the alternation of that has really improved my practice. It's, I'm getting so much more out of it. I'm learning so much more. But it is, this, it is this, this experience of, wow, I've seen consciousness go through these extraordinary contortions. I know that there are forms of consciousness so different from what I'm normally in. And now let's, let's settle down and look, look carefully and not go off on this rocket ride, but really look carefully. And that's what I'm really enjoying about, about meditation and, and, and about the waking up app. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing, the distinction for me, and the reason why psychedelics, almost by definition, can't be the complete path and ultimately can't be necessary in principle, although, you know, granted, you know, I just conceded that they, they might have been necessary in any one's case, including my own, is that the the self-transcendence that has to be truly useful and, and, and life-changing is that which can be coincident with normal waking consciousness. If there is a self-transcendence here that, is, that can really change your life moment to moment and change your relationships and change how you are at any time point in any circumstance, it has to be compatible with understanding human speech and being able to drive a car and is in fact there to be found. I mean, this is this is as empirically confirmable yeah. as anything you can experience on acid or on mushrooms. But the difference with acid and mushrooms or any other psychedelic or even you know a non-psychedelic like MDMA is that the changes in affect, you know, the positive changes in affect, if you have what's generally referred to as a good trip as opposed to a bad one, reveal the emotional poverty and the consequences mm-hmm. of it that so many of us have lived with most of our lives. And, there, and that's, you know, the price of the, the barren intellectualism you, you referenced in your journal is really paid there, you know. I mean, just spending your life thinking clever thoughts and trying not to be wrong and sorting out your beliefs about the world and never tasting real awe that pervades or seems to pervade every atom in your body, the cure for that problem really is that first acid trip or that first mushroom trip that lands in the right spot. And it can just take a a very long time. It's not that you can't get there with meditation. You, You absolutely can. But if you're not talented and you're not lucky and you're not persistent, it's a low percentage shot for most people. And, you know, whereas with psychedelics, it's, again, all the caveats issued elsewhere apply. But if you're lucky there, it's, there's something that's just undeniable. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, Jonathan, it's been great speaking to you. And um, albeit in these unusual times, I look forward to when we can emerge and, uh, you know, meet at a bar and plot the reconquest of civilization. Anything you want to say in, in closing about you know how you're viewing this time or any kind of reset to your your personal priorities? So you know I think the the way to maybe wrap up all the threads into one at the end here of our discussion is to say that uh, the, you know, the lesson I take from all of this is that we have to go easier on each other. And what I mean by that is we are so prone to moralism, rapid judgment. This is what set us up for the polarization, the polarization spiral that we've been in. It's our, our, our rapid judgment and judgmentalism is what social media has tapped into to amplify. This uh, polarization makes us 
very subject to motivated reasoning. I think it's what it's uh, what led to the passions that led to the the, uh, the electoral outcome in 2016. Our our quickness and willingness to hate each other and 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 distrust and question motives is what's interfering with our ability to address to address the pandemic, to find the truth, to develop good norms of, of democratic speech. And so, and the lesson, you know, as I said, uh, as I said earlier, one of the main lessons I took from my own experiences, the psychedelic experiences, was to be less judgmental. So if you're going to let me have the last word here, yeah. I'm going to end with my favorite quotation from all of ancient wisdom. It's from the Zen um, uh, monk uh, Sen San uh, in China, I think seventh century or so. And he says this, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely far apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. Now, of course, we have to make judgments in our daily life. But the ability to step out now and then, the ability to see in meditation, to catch your mind doing this, I think shows us how it works and shows us the possibility of saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Or of cultivating the ability to not go off on a, on a, on a, on a crusade uh, or, a, or a mental condemnation of someone or something. And I think if we can turn down the volume on our condemnation, if we can if we can take this wisdom from ancient societies, uh, the wisdom that many of us get from from psychedelic experiences and from and from practicing meditation, I think we'll be happier as individuals. We'll be more effective in bringing about the kinds of changes we want, and I think in that way we'll be able to continue living together. Fully agreed, no doubt. Well, thanks again, John, and um, our paths will cross when civilization reboots. Looking forward to that, Sam. <laughs>